0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, Head of Thought Leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on November 17th, 2021. With us to provide their latest views are Jenny Marler, Senior Managing Director and Head of Guggenheim Real Estate, and Matt Bush, Guggenheim's U.S. economist and a director in the Macroeconomic and Investment Research Group. I also had a conversation with Maria Giraldo, a managing director and investment strategist for the firm who focuses on the corporate credit markets. We will be looking at several top of mind issues for investors today. First, at the Federal Open Market Committee meeting earlier this month, the Fed announced how it will start to taper quantitative easing, but left a little bit of flexibility about the pace going forward. Investors who want to know if the latest print for the Consumer Price Index is the kind of data point that might cause the Fed to accelerate its pace. Matt Bush will give us an updated view on the inflation data and what it might mean for monetary policy. Second, Capital looking for a return is flowing into almost every asset class and real estate is a microcosm of this phenomenon. Jenny Marler will walk us through the record deal flow in her sector. And third, credit spreads are historically tight, but corporate credit fundamentals have rarely been this strong. I caught up with Maria Giraldo to discuss dynamics in credit risk. It's all a lot to think about. To begin with an update on the economy, let's bring in Guggenheim's U.S. economist, Matt Bush. Matt, take it away.
1: Thanks, Jay. The main theme of last week's data was one of broadening inflation pressures that are having an increasingly large impact on the economy and on policymaking. Starting with the October CPI, the monthly rise in core inflation was larger than expected at 0.6% month over month. While some of the increase was due to categories where we believe inflation is transitory, particularly autos. About two-thirds of the rise was due to other, less obviously transitory categories. In particular, rents continued to accelerate, and healthcare inflation was boosted by insurance prices. This broadening out of inflation is a concerning sign for the outlook. While we expect that an easing of supply chain issues will help cool inflation next year, more broad-based inflation in these larger, slower-moving categories, like rents and healthcare mean that core inflation is likely to stay above the Fed's target. Intensifying inflation pressures are also coming from a rapidly tightening labor market. Beyond just the unemployment rate, we can see that tightness in job openings that remained elevated in the September reading, and then a quits rate that reached an all-time high, indicating that workers feel confident in finding employment and maybe leaving their job for higher pay elsewhere. This labor market tightness looks set to continue, keeping wage growth elevated and eventually passing through into prices. The elevated inflation readings are also increasingly showing up in consumer sentiment data, with the preliminary November reading of the University of Michigan's consumer sentiment index falling to a 10-year low, worse than even the April 2020 reading when unemployment was 15%. That low sentiment is remarkable given strong wage gains, a booming stock market, and the relative ease of finding a job, but reflects the degree to which consumers are negatively reacting to the rise in inflation. This has prompted a notable shift in tone from the Biden administration, who reacted to the CPI report with less emphasis on the expected transitory nature of inflation and more on the steps the administration is taking to rein in prices, including an argument that the Build Back Better plan will fight inflation by lowering health care and childcare costs and by being fully paid for. That argument will probably be a tough sell to moderate Democrats who already had their doubts about another sizable fiscal package. Given the increasingly political salience of the inflation data, along with Biden's falling approval rating, Democrats are likely to capitulate to the most moderate Democratic senators and agree to pass a smaller package, which could also entail a delay into next year, as Senator Joe Manchin has recently argued for a strategic pause before passing more spending. The inflation data may also bear on the administration's Fed appointments. It probably slightly helps Chair Powell's chances of renomination. As the other leading contender, Governor Lale Brainard, is viewed as more dovish. And on the margin, it may dissuade the administration from filling other open Fed seats with some of the uber-doves they had previously been considering. Whatever the exact personnel makeup, we continue to think a hike is likely next year, given above-target inflation and what will be by then a historically tight labor market. Overseas reports last week indicated that Chinese regulators are considering easing rules to make it easier for property developers to sell assets and avoid default. Signals from the Central Committee's Sixth Plenum indicate these measures would be intended not to let up pressure on the property sector, but only to avoid a crisis, with a continued emphasis on housing for living, not for investment. The crackdown on the property sector has weighed on the Chinese economy in recent months, causing economic growth to slow. Data out over the weekend suggests the economy may be starting to stabilize, with fixed investment slowing further and construction-related commodity output falling, but with retail sales growth improving and with a better energy supply situation helping industrial production come in better than expected. Meanwhile in Europe, the September industrial production report for the Eurozone showed a second consecutive monthly decline led by weakness in auto manufacturing as the semiconductor shortage continues to bite. Some automakers have indicated that we are past the bottom in terms of the supply crunch, but production is still likely to remain subdued for at least the next several months, which will weigh on manufacturing output and continue to put upward pressure on global auto prices in the near term. That's all I have. Back to
0: you, Jay. Thanks, Matt Bush. Next up, we have Jenny Marler, head of Guggenheim's Real Estate Group, who will update us on the record-setting pace of deal activity in real estate. Jenny, the microphone is yours.
2: Thanks, Jay wanted to offer a few updated thoughts on investment activity in the commercial real estate space as we're starting to see data points coming through from the third quarter of 2021. In terms of the big picture in the U.S. commercial real estate space, year-to-date sales volume in the third quarter totaled $462.1 billion. That's up 10% from the same period in 2019 and the largest volume on record for the first three quarters of any year. Single-asset commercial real estate sales increased 130% year-over-year and were almost 30% higher relative to pre-pandemic third quarter of 2019 levels. The apartment and industrial sectors represent almost 60% of that deal activity through the first three quarters, 62% of third quarter 2021 alone. Warehouse and distribution centers and multifamily properties have increased in value by 41% and 19% respectively over their pre-pandemic levels. Cap rates for real estate have compressed across all property sectors and key subtypes over the last year. In line with that cap rate of compression, commercial property price indexes are also on the rise. The RCA National All Property Price Index climbed over 16% year over year. Year to date, deal volume fell 2% for urban offices, the sharpest decline across any of the major commercial real estate subtypes. When you compare the average pre-pandemic investment levels, year-to-date urban office investment was off by 80% in Los Angeles and 74% in Manhattan. In the third quarter of 21, 14 of the top 25 markets registered record high levels of transaction activity. For those markets, the investment averaged 45% above the volume seen for the same period between 2015 and 2018. Falling 16% from the prior year, Manhattan was the only top market to see total volume shrink through the first three quarters. In terms of the hotel market, deal volume bounced back much more sharply than any other sector in the third quarter of 21, with the highest triple-digit growth rates relative to a year ago. Do keep in mind that those are growth rates, so what the, what those levels were in 2020 was obviously severely depressed, so it's not surprising that sees the, the highest actual growth percentage over a year. But deal activity did average $9.4 billion for the third quarter between 2015 and 2019, so when you take into account the $9 billion in activity for third quarter of 2021, that actually puts the hotel investment sales volume within the range of normality. Um, U.S. retail um, has, you know, obviously was a class that people thought would struggle mightily during COVID. Investment sales were down 4% relative to the third quarter of 2019, which suggests a level that's closer to normal than uh, than an explosive rebound, but albeit not nearly as um, as depressed as, as people may have forecasted when COVID began. Uh, at $5.3 billion, the deal volume for grocery anchored retail assets hit a record high for the third quarter and represented almost a third of the total retail investment volume. Um, US apartments continue to be very strong. Uh, that deal volume totaled $178.5 billion through the first three quarters of 21. The nearly $80 billion in deal volume for the third quarter alone was higher than the average annual totals from 2008 to 2011. Cap rates for apartment properties came in at 4.7%. That's a record low level, despite the increases in the risk-free rate of the, U- of the 10-year U.S. Treasury. Um, all but four of the top 25 markets for apartment investment experienced record high levels of activity through the first three quarters of 2021. Um, U.S. industrial contends to be very hot, um, very much fueled by the surge in e-commerce during COVID with everyone at home, um, shopping at home and not shopping in bricks-and-mortar locations Sales for the first three quarters of 2021 have totaled to almost 100 billion, a figure higher than any comparable first three quarters on record. Industrial cap rates are also at record lows, with many deals closing somewhere between three and four uh, percent. The growth in investment volume for industrial has been the strongest across the warehouse market. Individual asset sales were 61 percent higher than they were in the third quarter of 2019. In line with this. Increased demand of in warehouse assets, the price index for warehouse assets is up more year over year um, for warehouse assets. Again, a movement of goods and supply chain as people are significantly increasing their level of e-commerce shopping versus in-person. In terms of U.S. office... Office is the one sector that um, has continued to struggle more than others through COVID, although not nearly as depressed as people may have forecasted with all of us working from home for the last 18 months. A total office investment in the third quarter was $34.8 billion. That returns it to a pace on par with the third quarter 2019 levels uh, in the first four quarters of two, uh, in the first, in the four quarters through the third quarter of 2021, suburban investment accounted for 70% of that as again, people are looking to exit you know, urban assets and spend more time closer to home in those suburban office location. Um, still a lot of uncertainty about what happens uh, in terms of when people go back to work and what the office demand will look like, um, particularly in those urban locations, again, that rely heavily on mass transit and people getting back to work. While the overall volume was up year over year, it's still almost 30% lower than the pace that was set in the third quarter of 2019. Uh, Boston, interestingly, remains the top market for office deal volume, a position that has held since the end of 2020. That's largely due to the presence of large life science and academic communities. that's made Boston a significant target for investors in the office space. A current year-to-date investment volume for Boston is 50% higher than average level for the first three quarters for the five years leading into the pandemic. So overall, um, a very positive trend for commercial real estate, despite all the headwinds we've seen from covid a general trend uh, that we're still seeing very strong price appreciation across almost all sectors in commercial real estate. It's driven in large part, not just by fund- and driven in large part not just by fundamentals, but by the fact that real estate remains a very attractive investment opportunity. That's seeing a lot of capital chasing opportunities to invest in U.S. commercial real estate, both foreign and domestic. That's all I have, Jay. I'll turn it back to you.
0: Thanks, Jenny Marler. I was very fortunate to catch up with Maria Giraldo, the author of our High Yield and Bank Loan Outlook and an investment strategist at Guggenheim. Let's listen in. Welcome, Maria, and thanks for taking the time to chat with us today.
3: Thanks, Jay. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course, of course. Now, Maria, You are the firm's eyes and ears on the credit markets, so to speak, Uh, and I want to spend a few minutes to get your take on some of the headline issues in this sector, Um, and we can take them one at a time, Um, starting with, what are the fundamentals telling you right now about credit quality?
3: So we're seeing a significant improvement in credit fundamentals on the back of strong corporate earnings growth but also because of corporate discipline. Now we're largely through um, earnings announcements for the third quarter and so far, although expectations were very depressed going into the season due to the impact of the Delta variant, many companies have beat expectations. So just one data point on this is that for the S&P 500, for example, so far over 80% have beat earnings per share expectations this quarter. I think this is, uh, in part due to a strong recovery in revenues with consumption remaining strong. You know, We just got the advanced retail sales figure for October, for example, which were well above expectations despite some expected headwinds around a lack of inventories. And again, due to the impact of the Delta variant, which did play a role in depressing food services activities. Uh, but as it relates you know, to corporate credit quality, we're continuing to see an improvement in leverage ratios, meaning that they continue to come down from last year's very high levels. And this is true whether you're looking at large investment grade companies or the comparably smaller high yield companies. Um, you know, importantly, from the perspective of an asset manager that has a lot of portfolio exposure to corporate credit, we think that an important highlight is that interest coverage is very, very healthy. Interest coverage is the ratio of a company's cash flow relative to a year of interest expense. So if you have an interest coverage ratio of five times, then your cash flow is five times your annual interest expense, which means you can cover payments pretty easily. In investment grade, you'll easily have interest coverage of eight, nine, 10 times or more. In high yield, we're currently seeing interest coverage of about five times, which is very strong. And then you look at this data in the aggregate using the Federal Reserve's financial accounts data, and you'll see interest coverage is actually at the best level since the late 1960s. So to sum up, all of this is leading to more bond rating upgrades than we're seeing versus downgrades, which is a big reversal from what we saw in 2020. So the Fed's efforts to keep financial conditions supportive, access to credit easy, And rates low is all playing a role in helping to improve corporate issuers' ability to improve their credit situation and pay their interest expense. And that, in turn, is driving strong investor demand for credit.
0: Uh, Well, it certainly looks like a good backdrop for credit. Um, How does this play into, say, your, your views on default rates going forward?
3: Yeah, so so because fundamentals are really strong, and in particular, you know, we're, we're really looking at the, the corporate issuer's ability to cover their interest expense by multiple times over, we do not expect a default cycle next year or the year after that. We really expect defaults to stay below the historical average. Now, to put that into context, on average, you might see the high-yield universe uh, have a, a default rate of about 4.5%. So roughly 4.5% of companies might default in any given year. Next year, our forecasts are showing about a 2% default rate. That is very low. And when you consider that against a backdrop of pretty, pretty healthy recoveries in the event that a default situation occurs, you're looking at yields that are more than compensating for expected defaults for next year.
0: There's some shifting uh, winds in uh, macroeconomic policy, um, and I'm wondering if that might have an impact on what you're talking about. Uh, one of the things that we see, certainly on the near term horizon, uh, is um, a tapering of QE, and just behind that, perhaps, is a liftoff in rates. Uh, how vulnerable do you think companies are to a liftoff in rates at this point?
3: So, you know, of course, if we think that the low interest rate environment and accommodative monetary policy has played a role in improving corporate credit fundamentals, then the opposite of that, meaning rising interest rates and the Fed beginning to withdraw policy accommodation, would be a concern. If this were the 1980s or 1990s or even the late 2000s, I would be much more concerned about credit issuer vulnerability to rising short-term interest rates. And that's because the data we've analyzed shows that back then, U.S. non-financial corporations relied a lot on short-term funding like commercial paper. And then when you added floating rate liabilities like commercial loans in many of those years, the non-financial corporate exposure to short-term interest rates was much more than their exposure to what tends to be fixed rate and longer day debt. So today, we estimate about 65% of non-financial corporate debt is fixed rate. Companies have taken the opportunity to refinance their debt, lock in lower costs, and they won't need to revisit their upcoming maturities for many years. Four or five years for smaller, below-investment grade companies, or over 10 years on average uh, for large investment grade companies.
0: Everything comes at a price. So talk to us a little bit about the price of credit right now in terms of spreads. Uh, how do they stack up historically? Do you characterize them as tight? Um, and where do you think they go from here?
3: Sure, yeah, you know, just to explain to our listeners that maybe are not familiar with what spreads are, credit spreads basically represent how much more yield are you getting in a corporate credit bond versus what's traditionally considered a riskless asset like treasury. So if you earn a 2% yield on your corporate bond, When treasuries are 1%, then your spread is 1%, which is just a difference. And spreads tend to widen when investors become concerned about credit conditions, and they'll tighten when there is strong demand for credit and when default risk is perceived to be low. So I do think that credit spreads are very tight already, but when you look at the broader picture of corporate credit fundamentals, low default rates, rating agencies, increasing credit ratings, Uh, low interest rates, accommodative financial conditions, I would say that it makes sense spreads are tight. You know, not only that, but there is over $12 trillion in negative yielding assets abroad, which drives even more demand for anything that offers a positive nominal yield. And just to pound the table a little harder on interest rates, I think it's important to recognize that given where inflation expectations are for the next five years, the expected real yield on treasuries is deeply negative. So investors want to preserve the real value of their investments. And that means reaching into credit, which pulls spreads in a little tighter. Now there is still room for spreads to tighten a little bit more. We saw spreads a little tighter than where they are today. We saw the tighter spreads in the nineties, but the vast majority of spread tightening that we would see in any given cycle is already behind us. Um, we're nearing the historical tights on credit spreads. I, I, I do see a backdrop for spreads staying contained around a tight range. This is something that we also saw in the 90s. And investors are largely going to earn their yield on their investment over the next couple of years.
0: So it sounds like uh, they're tight, but they could stay in this range for a yeah. while.
3: Stay, stay relatively range-bound.
0: Now, of course, there's always the the, the, the risk of an exogenous force, uh, and I wanted to bring uh, one uh, exo- possible exogenous event that, uh, that is out there before we wrap up, Maria, and that is developments in China. Uh, we see the, uh, the, the challenges uh, to Evergrande and other companies in the Chinese real estate sector. Uh, are you seeing any impact of concerns there on our markets? Uh, and do you think that enough attention is being paid to this risk?
3: It's interesting. I think one of the risks to there being so many positive trends in the credit sector is that investors then tend to ignore or underestimate the consequences of trends that are much slower moving. And so that that does um, include what's happening in the China real estate sector, where it's become clear that the Chinese government's hardened stance on limiting leverage in that sector is here to stay, they are, they are not budging. And as a result, we've seen troubles pop up across several Chinese developers, including Evergrande, which many of our listeners may have heard of at this point, but several other developers as well. Now the market reaction and the pricing that we're seeing in credit markets suggests that the stress is going to be almost exclusively limited to Chinese property developers. And I think a lot of that has to do with how much liquidity there there is in the system, Um, Beijing's involvement in trying to contain spillovers, and a lot of the trends that we've spoken about here uh, regarding corporate credit fundamentals being really strong. But there are likely going to be repercussions that we won't see until the second half of 2022 or even later than that. Uh, Because if you think about the slowdown in the real estate sector in China, that's going to affect Chinese financials through their real estate lending activities. It's going to affect home price appreciation, or even Chinese consumer fundamentals. You consider that real estate as a percent of household wealth in China is over 60%. I've even seen estimates of 70%. But in the U.S., real estate only represents about a quarter of a household net worth. So the sensitivity in China is a lot greater. Now, again, I think this is a slow moving train, one that we won't see the effects of for a while, but one that credit investors should absolutely be paying attention to, as there are many U.S. companies that have in some way gained from strong China GDP growth over the past decade.
0: Well, plenty to think about. Uh, Maria, thank you so much for sharing with us uh, your thoughts on the the credit backdrop to the fixed income markets, and we hope you'll come back and visit with us again soon.
3: Absolutely. Thank you, Jay.
0: My thanks once again to Jenny Marler, Matt Bush, and Maria Giraldo. And thanks to everyone who joined us for our new podcast. I'm Jay Diamond, and we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership and videos, including the CIO outlook by Scott Minard, our global CIO, visit GuggenheimInvestments.com perspectives. So long.
4: Important notices and disclosures. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security strategy or investment product or as investing advice of any kind this material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial, tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. This podcast contains opinions of the author, but not necessarily those of Guggenheim Partners or its subsidiaries. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates, and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners, LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of, nor liability for, decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results.